for all of us coming and carving out time for recovery, getting really clear that you're not carving out time for recovery to practice yourself out of being human, that you're actually evolving simply by awakening to these things that you're feeling. And it's only through awakening or awareness that then we're able to make little changes along the way. But if we don't set time aside for awareness, we're not going to be able to go to that next phase that you speak so eloquently to in terms of evolution. That if the awareness piece is missing in the recovery piece, there is no evolving into the next iteration or growth and transformational space of yourself and what you're capable of in your realm of expertise. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Lauren Ekstrom. Lauren is the co-founder of Inner Dimension TV, an online streaming platform for yoga, meditation, and personal growth. She describes herself as a yoga teacher, a mindfulness meditation instructor, a mother, and a wife. And she's been named one of the top instructors to study with by Yoga Journal. She teaches her unique style of holistic yoga flow around the world. You can find out more about Lauren from her website, which is innerdimensiontv.com. That's www.innerdimensiontv.com. Or on all social media at Lauren Ekstrom, one word, L-A-U-R-E-N-E-C-K-S-T-R-O-M. On a personal level, I have been truly fortunate to get to study yoga with Lauren, and I'm constantly struck by her ability to drop just incredible, significant wisdom around recovery and returning the center. And this podcast is just a great example of that. We're going to talk about the idea of creating spaces for processing and recovery, about the idea of working with really challenging and raw emotions, and ultimately about the idea of creating a personal practice that really weaves together the ideas of preparation and recovery for high-performing individuals and teams. Before we jump in, a reminder if you haven't already to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find it on Amazon, you can find it at bookstores, or you can find it at emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this really awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. Lauren, I am so happy to be sitting down with you like this. I wish it were together in a yoga studio, but I will take this as an excellent second best. And I'm, I'm just honored that you'd come on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. And after two years, it just warms my heart to see your face. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, right? It's going from going from seeing each other quite often to very different given the, the state of the universe right now. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm hoping we can jump in to something that we don't talk about a lot on this podcast, right? We we tend to have a lot of time thinking about sort of what to do in these high pressure situations. And, and when we think about recovery and preparation, it's often in the micro scale and the short terms in between procedures that you're doing or over the course of a shift. And I don't think we spend a lot of time talking about what to do the day after, what to do before you're back on call and inverting that sort of preparation recovery model. I'm hoping we can start with that in part because I need that. I definitely need that. And I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast probably do too. So when you start thinking about coming down from something, you've been through some intense experience, whatever that experience is, and you're just 
starting to have enough space available to loosen up and start to get back into your own body and mind. What do you think about for that? It's such a powerful and beautiful inquiry. And I think especially for yourself and anybody who's in any kind of frontline emergency style of of work. And I don't just put emergency frontline workers in that category. I think of people who are working in the restorative justice movement or any number of high stress situations. So I really want to just acknowledge and appreciate you bringing attention to this aspect of recovery. It's funny because there's a commercial that's running on television right now. And as you talk about this, it occurs to me because it triggers my nervous system. And it's with Patrick Mahomes, who is the quarterback for Kansas City and another football player. And he's a retired older football player. And he's kind of always in Patrick Mahomes face in all these different situations. And his catch line is never not working never not working, uh, never not yeah. working. And it's funny, but every time I see this commercial, I feel the anxiety rising in my body, which is partnered with the conditioning that I think so many of us grow up under in this society, in this culture, which is that idea that we should never not be working and therefore have decided that we are not worthy of recovery, that if we need recovery or downtime or space or healing, any kind of rest, extra sleep or self-compassion, we therefore assume that we are not working hard enough. Something is wrong with us. Other people don't require this level of recovery. And this is an aspect of cultural conditioning that we need to reframe if we want to have a better future for future generations. And if we ourselves want to have longevity that is sustainable and a true sense of well-being. I think of the science that says if you shut down your feelings of pain and grief and suffering, you equally shut down your ability to experience joy and happiness. And so in these times of recovery, we need to go into and feel whatever it is that we're feeling, anger, frustration, grief, rage, you know, none of these things are to be denied. They all have a purpose. It doesn't mean that, you know, for people who are, who are on the yoga or mindfulness path, that your practice isn't working, that if these emotions arise, they're actually pointing to something really, really important. And it can be useful. And so going into those places and allowing ourselves the ability to feel whatever is asking to be felt without causing more harm to ourselves or to another is a critical piece of our recovery, especially if we want to then go forward beyond that into the space of evolution and feel joy in our reconnection or coming back to work or coming back onto the front line, coming back into that job or stressful situation that actually you're incredibly passionate about. And that is your dharma or your calling. So that was, you know, one piece that really comes to mind to me right at the forefront when you bring that conversation forward. You know, that's such a, a rich and like worthwhile thing to dig into. Cause I think this is a real 
point of challenge for a lot of us who work in this space. I totally agree with you. I'm I'm using us in a very broad sense. It is not just ER doctors. There are lots and lots of people that are caught in these kind of situations and trying to do their best and on that front line, wherever that line is. But we face these moments where connecting to our feeling is at best challenging and at worst, possibly quite harmful to us and the people that we're serving. And it's this sort of inverted piece of life, right? Normally we say, okay, you have a feeling, you have an emotion, you have these thoughts that are coming up and you try to, in the words of my therapist, like, what do you do with feelings? You feel them, right? You try to like, let them happen and sort of bring them up and start to be curious about what it is that's going on inside you. That is not always possible in the middle of a crisis, right? You might be in something where you have these great feelings of sorrow or sometimes guilt or rage or whatever it is, and you can't connect to those right then because what you need to do is just move forward for the person. And so we set up this practice of ignoring and blocking what we're feeling. And what you're suggesting in many ways is the opposite of that, which is to start listening to ourselves more and sort of digging into it. What do you do with that, right? What do you do with that dichotomy where sometimes you have to block it and sometimes you have to listen to it? And what are we supposed to do in that? And it's such an important question and inquiry. You know, in in my mind, and I can think of multiple situations for myself that are different. This morning is a prime example. There was a spoon that was being used in a pot that had something on it that was melting and it burned my hand. Mm. And my daughter is two years old. And rather than having a big reaction and terrifying her, I took a deep breath, put the spoon into the sink and put some cold water on my hand. In the moment, it wouldn't have made sense for me to express everything that I was feeling. It would have actually caused pretty big damage to her and it would have terrified her. So when I think about people who are in emergency situations, my approach in terms of what I'm suggesting in this moment of recovery is days later, not in the moment, not on the spot. There are so many situations that all of us, just as human beings, it does not make sense to feel or express your rage right now. And you already mentioned therapist. We all need to have safe people and safe places that in the aftermath of a day or an experience, we can turn to to process. And so in my mind, that's a day after your shift, 12 hours after your shift, setting yourself up for successful recovery, allocating time and space for practice, for processing with a therapist or a friend or a safe partner, someone who is deeply listening and isn't asking questions or giving advice, and then having an embodied practice, which for me is often in the frame of yoga and having some sense of being able to, as you're you spoke to, we have to feel our feelings, but so many of us are disconnected from the physical body. And in emergency situations, we're running from instinct. We're also running from that education that we've had that rises up to meet us there in that moment so that we can respond wisely. And it reminds me of that story of a preschool teacher who asked the room of children, what is the body for? And a little girl shot her hand up in the air and said, to carry the head around. And we've completely forgotten that that that's not actually what the body is for. That's a great thing that the body does, but the body is 
full of information. And it doesn't mean that you need to go in and feel your grief and cry big tears. Maybe that's what you need, but it might just mean lying over a bolster for 10 minutes and allowing yourself to be still, to be still through the discomfort that stillness often brings because of the residue of everything you may have experienced in that emergency moment and trusting your physical body to be able to hold as a container and process whatever it is that might be arising. So in my mind, it's an allocation of specific time and space for active conscious recovery to take place. I want to highlight something that you just said in there, which is that you sort of have to inherent to that is not just physical time and space, but also trust of yourself and your person that you can start digging into that. How do we build that trust? Practice. (laughs) You know, I think when I first started a yoga practice, I was so disconnected from my physical body. I was a heady kid. I was a bookworm. I didn't know right from left. I don't think I had any muscles. And that had served me well, because if I functioned at the level of my head, then I didn't have to feel years of grief. I didn't have to feel years of of sorrow that had come from certain experiences in, in childhood or adolescence. And so when I started doing a yoga practice in its many different physical forms, we can, you know, we have power yoga and yin yoga and restorative yoga and all these different aspects of, of physical embodied practice that can meet people where they're at. But I had to keep coming back again and again and again Because I had a programming that said, oh, it wasn't safe to be in my body because then I was going to have to feel my weakness or I was going to have to feel not just the physical sensations that I had been avoiding, but also the emotional sensations that I had been avoiding and the inner dialogue that accompanied that conditioning that so many of us live with, not good enough or whatever you know, always looking for a problem, whatever the the conditioning of the inner narrative might be. And so through practice, and we might need to titrate that. I want to be really clear here, depending on the level of somebody's trauma or what somebody is working with, maybe it makes sense to do 10 minutes for a month. And then you go up to 15 and 20. We don't want to jump into the deep end and re-traumatize ourselves or put ourselves into a situation of something that we actually aren't ready or equipped to handle, a muscle that we haven't strengthened yet. But over time, we can see that, wow, when I really am present and I'm returning to my body and I'm taking a breath, I can be with this. I can be with this anxiety. I can be with this sense of hopelessness, or I can equally be with my gratitude and and my overwhelming joy. And we learn over time how to become a bigger container. Wow. (laughs) So many thoughts to that. A lot of us process the uncertainty and discomfort of being in the middle of something like a critical resuscitation where there are life and death decisions and there's all this pressure on you and all this weight. And you learn in some sense to handle that emotion by isolating it or by setting it aside or by saying, I know this is important, but I'm not going to do it right now. Or I am just going to sit with it and plow straight ahead through it. And you have this sort of limited set of tools and you do it over and over again, and it gets you so far sort of But what you're describing 
the simple act of just carving out space to let it be what it is, not demanding that you solve all the problems, just creating the space and starting to work the muscle of understanding what you're feeling and recovering from it. I think too often we are agenda-based and people who are probably in roles like yourself are highly educated. You are highly trained. You've come through models of education and culture that have said, you know, if you put yourself on this curriculum, this will be the outcome. And so follow step one, step two, step three, step four, and it will lead to X conclusion. And spiritual practice, embodied practice doesn't work that way. You know, there isn't actually an end goal that we're practicing toward. And I think that this is a place where we get really confused as if, you know, okay, if I keep showing up, then I'm not going to feel these things. Then I'm not going to have to do this anymore because one day I will practice myself out of feeling frustrated or angry or whatever the thing might anxious, I think is a big one for our culture these days. Look, I came to yoga because I was devastated by anxiety as a college freshman. I became almost agoraphobic, anxiety attacks coming out of nowhere. I didn't know if I was going to faint or vomit. It was terrifying. Now I can say that because of a yoga and mindfulness practice that has sustained me for close to 20 years, I don't have panic attacks like that anymore, but I am still anxious. <laughs> I have not practiced my way out of anxiety. It just manifests differently. A prime example will be cleaning. You know, I need things to be really clean or my, my dishes to be washed that's still a manifestation of my anxiety. It's not that I don't feel anxious anymore. And so for all of us coming and carving out time for recovery, getting really clear that you're not carving out time for recovery to practice yourself out of being human, that you're actually evolving simply by awakening to these things that you're feeling. And it's only through awakening or awareness that then we're able to make little changes along the way. But if we don't set time aside for awareness, we're not going to be able to go to that next phase that you speak so eloquently to in terms of evolution. That if the awareness piece is missing in the recovery piece, there is no evolving into the next iteration or growth and transformational space of yourself and what you're capable of in your realm of expertise. You know, a question I, I get asked quite a bit by folks who are coming up in one form or another, and, and often it's a medical student or a college student who asks me this is, when do you stop feeling the bad things that you see happen to your patients? Mm. And sometimes we have that conversation because we're in the middle of a situation that is just truly hard. You know, somebody's in cardiac arrest and and maybe died and myself or the student or somebody else was doing CPR and you're sort of feeling all of those things that are happening. And there's a close to the case in whatever way it closes. And then you're sitting there for a second and you're sort of having your group recalibration just for a moment. And that's usually when some form of that question comes up, when will I stop feeling this? Can I do this so many times that I don't feel it anymore? I remember asking that too, in one form or another, asking, you know, wh when will I start to function like 
like, like an ice cube doctor or a robot doctor or whatever it is that, that lets me just plow through this without feeling any of it. And I think I believed that for a while. I think I believed that if I did it enough, I would just stop feeling anything about it. And I, I don't know if that's because somewhere along the way, we teach ourselves that we, we propagate this myth that you stop feeling things when you do them a bunch of times, or we confuse what we're seeing in somebody else for them not feeling it. And what you just said is so powerful, right? You don't do this to not be human anymore. You don't do this to not feel. You don't do this to arrive at some place where there's no longer any suffering or anxiety or pain or frustration. You do this to feel that and be more human. Yeah. It's it's so powerful because I understand the root of the question. And we all have a question like that for some challenge in our, in our lives. And there's a balance like you've already spoken to. I think of it as a patient. I don't ever want a doctor who stops feeling their humanity. I don't ever want to be under the care of a physician, an emergency worker, a firefighter, a lawyer, you know, any situation. I don't ever want to be under the care of somebody who has disconnected from those feelings. And I also want to be under the care of someone who has done the work and has the maturity to know when is the appropriate time to express those things fully so as not to cause more harm or more damage and to be able to make grounded decisions in the moment. When I was about seven and a half months pregnant with my daughter, I had flown on, I think it was like 10 airplanes in seven days. I was working in a maximum security prison where I often have gone to teach with my husband. We teach yoga and meditation to a group of maximum security men. And I got kidney stones. Mm. I was seven and a half months pregnant and in the emergency room in the middle of the night on the opposite coast of my home, I didn't know what was going to happen if we were going to end up delivering my daughter early. You know, they're worried I'm going to go into labor and they decided that they were going to put a stint in to Mm -hmm. my, into my kidneys. I was devastated about this and we didn't know any other solution. And as they were wheeling me in for the surgery. I'm sobbing, crying. And all of the nurses and doctors stopped my husband holding the wheelchair and said, we need to ask you to come into this room. And they closed the door and together it was four women and one man. And they said, we are not going to do this. We're not going to move forward. Some of the women were crying and because they were still attuned to my humanity, Mm. they made a different decision at a moment when they didn't have to, they were set up to do what they had decided hmm. to do, to go forward with their plan. And they looked at me and they said, we're not making the right decision for this patient, for this person. Hmm. And because they had the willingness to be tuned into my humanity and to really hear me and listen to me, they collectively came up with a more compassionate plan. Those are the kinds of people in emergency and critical life situations. You know, We're talking about not just my life, but my daughter's life. That's the kind of care I want to be under. And so I understand the desire to not feel the depth of some of the experiences that I have no doubt in emergency situations, you and your counterparts are are dealing with. There's a reason I'm not a doctor. I want to be real clear about this. (laughs) It's a serious reason that I don't do it because I just have such admiration and deep respect for what it takes. But I really hope that there is an understanding that it is what 
prompted so many of you to come onto this path in the first place. And if you lose that, you lose the root impetus of what your inspiration was for your life's calling. This is going to be one of those podcasts where, you know, you sort of realize like you just get hit by things over and over again as you're recording it. I love it. And it's not easy, you know, like this isn't an easy ask. It's, and it's not easy for any human being. I want to be really clear about that. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? We like, we, we have to be reminded of these things. This recovery piece that you're speaking to, which really is the catalyst for evolution. It is the catalyst for those who are engaged in this process that you have so clearly laid out. If we don't actively engage in this process of recovery, feeling all of our humanity, connecting with each other, having these conversations, doing the embodied work and healing, we cannot be better the next time. We cannot be better for ourselves, for our patients, for the future next time. This is the groundwork. This is the level at which during this process, you get to then transform into whatever is the next great iteration of who you are in your line of work. You know, Lauren, I I wish I could listen to this and say that I am so fully on board with what you're saying and that this is how I practice and that I'm doing all these things and that everybody, don't worry, we've got this. This is going to be totally fine. And instead though, what I'm actually feeling, uh, if I'm being honest, when I'm listening to this is how hard and frankly, sometimes terrifying it is to do what you're describing to really open up even for a few minutes to the depth of what you're seeing and feeling and exposed to. I think it's worth saying that out loud because often we propagate this myth that the people that are fully trained, whatever that means, don't feel these things and don't struggle with these things. And so I'll happily go on record and saying, that's not true for me. I'm definitely feeling it and definitely working on it and definitely struggling with it. And I think that what you said a second ago about you know, this being a necessary piece to keep the human to human caring spark alive, why so many of us went to work on whatever piece of the front line we work on. It's also easy for that to become a heavy weight as well. If I'm not feeling that human spark in this moment, man, I must be a terrible person. I must be so burnt out. Like, how am I going to recover? You just pile and pile and pile. Something I keep coming back to in this, this idea from uh, Pema Chodron, a wonderful Buddhist teacher that talks about just not pouring gas on the fire. And that sometimes the practice, sometimes the recovery piece is just not pouring gas on the fire. Mm-hmm. Just don't make it worse. <laughs> and, and that this isn't some standard to hold yourself up against. I'm not saying like every time your shift ends, allocate a day of retreat to feel everything that you're feeling and cry and journal and have, you know, have therapy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm like, maybe it's five minutes. Of, of a conscious choice to breathe or, or go on a walk without your phone, feel your feet on the earth, see the hawk that lives in your urban neighborhood. You know, I'm not saying that this isn't some, some standard to model ourselves against and then give ourselves yet another reason to feel like we're not doing enough. It makes me think about when you first learned to drive a car and you've probably heard this metaphor on this podcast before, 
but you get in the car for the first time at 15 or whatever the age is. And it's the rear view mirror and it's the side view mirror and it's the seat buckle and it's the blinker and it's the wipers and the cars are coming from both directions and the pedestrians and you're on such high alert. But if I still drove a car like that 20 plus years later, we would all be in trouble you know, at a certain point in time. You got to let things get into a rhythm and they can't affect you the same way they did the first time. So some of what you're speaking to is important for your functionality in the line of work that people on the front lines are doing. I don't want you to have to be <laughs> overly processing everything that's coming up. I need some of those things on the receiving end to fall into the background. I hope that that brings some ease to what it is you spoke to that you're feeling and what maybe other people are feeling. Look, I'm not perfect with it either myself. And I think these last two years have brought that forward to all of us. The demands on our lives are insane, whether it's, you know, workload, childcare, running a home, pandemic, you know, all these things. No one's doing this quote unquote perfectly. I don't believe that there is such a thing. And the difference that five conscious minutes can make is life-changing. Okay. So we, we recognize, we feel things that it's hard sometimes to establish the right balance between stuff, but we're, we're devoted to trying. We say, we want to try this. We want to try opening up space to process this and recover a little bit. Our shift is over. We have a, a bit of time off and, and we're interested in starting this. We know we don't have to do everything all at once, but we want to dip our toes in a little bit. What do you do to set that up? Do you have, we talk sometimes on the, on the podcast and in sort of this world in general about like rituals and boundaries and limits, right? Where you're sort of like, okay, this will now be a space that I do this. Like, do you have rituals like that, that, that you start to get into? Do people listening to this, do you just want them to lie on the floor for a little bit? <laughs> like, which is totally great. Like what, like, what do they do? Somebody listening to this that wants to try this today. And I want to speak to different points of entry for people because my area revolves around a few different things. There's the entry point of traditional mindfulness practice or meditation, which I'm sure you've spoken to extensively on the podcast. And then there's the entry point of an embodied practice, like a physical practice such as yoga. Different things work for different people. I'm of the belief that the science of yoga, as outlined by Patanjali, the eight limbs of yoga, shows us that there is a specific order of things that helps us do this work the best in terms of the eight limbs of yoga that starts first with life principles that we live by, the yamas and the niyamas. And this exists in every culture. You know, We all have this about honesty and compassion and leading lives of gratitude and service. So that's the a foundation. But next is that we move the body and there's so much that is stored in the body. And that doesn't have to be vigorous movement. I think these days it is often seen that way. And vigorous movement is important for all the reasons that we already know in terms of endorphins and health and heart health and lung health and mental health and all of these things that, that vigorous movement provides. But it doesn't have to be that. And it also doesn't have to be hours on end. So having five minutes maybe or seven minutes is kind of the sweet spot said to be. There's a great teacher named Mark Whitwell and he calls it the promise. And he says, you know, if you just do seven minutes a day, that's really the sweet spot of linking breath to movement. And then from that place, 
having some active breath work. So some conscious breathing that could be as simple as inhaling to the count of four and exhaling to the count of six. That particular breath pattern is called resonance breathing. Eddie Stern writes about this extensively in his book, One Simple Thing. He's a senior Ashtanga yoga teacher and has been involved in many clinical research studies now on the power of yoga and physical asana yoga practice and breath work on our nervous systems and our physiology. And that one breath pattern, inhaling for four, exhaling for six, has been shown to have incredible impact on the nervous system in the mind. And maybe we just do that for a few rounds. You know, maybe we're moving our body, linking breath to movement for five minutes, and then we're breathing in for four and exhaling for six for five rounds. And then we sit in silence for a couple of minutes. And from that place, we enter into a space of mindfulness or meditation, which are ultimately considered the deeper states of yoga. But then we've laid the groundwork. We've exercised out of the body, any nervous energy, the things that we've needed to be feeling. We've given ourselves the anchor of the body and the breath. And then the mind is ready to to receive spaciousness, is ready to be in that state of receptivity of awareness for whatever needs to surface. And in that space, we're not trying to stop our thoughts. We're not trying to make anything happen. We're just simply sitting in a state of receptivity, receiving our whole environment, the sounds of our lives happening outside the walls in which we're sitting. We might hear our children or the busyness outside. And that's okay. It all belongs. The sensations, the physical sensations, the emotional sensations and feelings And we do that for a couple of minutes, and that might be enough of a simple practice. We don't have to set ourselves up on some sort of 108-day, two-hour-a-day program to find the effects of this in our lives. Such a like powerful message to just start doing that, just to start doing the little bits and things to transition and to start digging into this space. Well, a lot of us have occasionally pretty intrusive thoughts bordering on flashbacks from some of the stuff that we see. And a question I get sometimes is for folks that are trying to create more space for conscious recovery, you know, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're starting this process and what comes up isn't a thought about your foot itching, but it's a thought about, you know, this pretty horrific thing that you've seen recently. Yeah, that just speaks to me so so strongly and I think probably for everybody who might be listening to this over the last several years, we've all had experiences that pull our attention back again and again vigorously at least once in in this lifetime we have that we have that experience i have no doubt that again you've spoken to this extensively on the podcast we want to be really careful of bypass right we want to be really careful of spiritual bypass of putting on for anybody who's unfamiliar with the term any of these practices are not about putting on rose colored glasses focusing on rainbows and unicorns and sunshine and pretending like everything's okay, that we would actually frame that as maybe toxic positivity. And that doesn't do us any good. It causes more harm. And yet simultaneously, the partner of that is there is a very valid reason not to go to certain places at certain times. I'll use the example of being in a very strong yoga pose. And let's say we're in warrior two, where you know, your legs are spread out, your front knee is bent, your arms are lifted the height of your chest, and the teacher is keeping you there for too long. They are talking for too long. Your body is shaking. Your muscles are burning. Lactic acid is building. 
what if you didn't put your attention into that place in your body that's feeling so intense? And instead, in that moment, you turned your attention to a place that felt okay or safe to be with in that moment. And I would say the same thing goes in those moments of intense thoughts. And that's been a practice for me, you know, I'll say just in parenthood, my, my daughter fell down and it was near the wall of a river that had a really far drop. There was a gate there, but I would wake up in the middle of the night, heart rate racing at this thought of like, oh my God, what if she had fallen through the little gap and crashed down into the Los Angeles river? Not helpful for me at 2 a.m. to keep <laughs> replaying that vision yeah in my head again and again and again. And so instead I would lay my body back down. The thought would still be there in the background. And instead I would put my attention into a place in my body that felt safe to be with the feeling of my body on the bed, the feeling of my bed supporting my body, my gratitude for that soft support. And then the place in my body where I could feel my breath deep in my abdomen rising and falling. And as long as I kept bringing my attention back to that place, that soft place in my abdomen, I would fall asleep again. So I think it's learning about how to place our attention somewhere that is not just useful for us, but as you already spoke so eloquently to in a place that isn't adding more fuel to the fire. But ultimately, this is what all of yoga and everything we're talking about is yoga. This is what all of yoga is about. All of yoga is about bringing the end to suffering by learning how to not believe or follow certain thoughts. Bringing the end to suffering by learning how to not follow certain thoughts. You know, the connection here jumps out to me between what we're saying with that about not following certain thoughts and learning how to sort of co-live with certain thoughts or accept certain thoughts as happening without being pulled by them. And a thing that we talk about a lot about the idea of wedge practice, of low wedge practice and high wedge practice, right? High wedge being the most significant, intense experiences you can come up with in the middle of a resuscitation and low wedge practice being you spill your coffee on yourself and other sort of like minor inconveniences that are nevertheless uncomfortable. And what you're describing seems like it would lend itself so well to practice that way, to practice in low wedge scenarios when you feel things to not necessarily go with them or to put your attention in different places that might be more useful for you. I love how you asked that. Like, is this useful for me at two in the morning? Probably not. Like, man, we, I've for sure had that thought at two in the morning, like, ah, oh, this probably isn't the most useful thing I could be doing right now to perseverate about this, but to try to apply these concepts that you're talking about in low wedge places and start feeling comfortable with them to build up the muscle of doing that until you're able to process a little more. And I think that's such a hopeful worthwhile message. Like you don't have to bite this all off at once. You don't have to go from zero to 60. You can try these techniques and build these spaces and start creating the machinery in your mind and your body of recovery, of conscious recovery through attacking some of these smaller places in there. Unquestioningly. I mean, that's it. You hit the nail on the head. And as we were getting ready to connect and speak, I thought so much about how my practice I'm not practicing on the mat or sitting on the cushion for those moments themselves. 
you know, I'm practicing because when I need my practice the most, I'm not going to be sitting on my meditation cushion. I am not going to be on my yoga mat. And some of the most important times where, like you're speaking to, just the small amounts of practice that I have committed to day in and day out have been the groundwork that has met me in my most intense situations. But if I hadn't done those little pieces day in and day out consistently, I wouldn't have had those moments of victory. I wouldn't have had those moments of groundedness. I wouldn't have had those moments of alert responsiveness when it was necessary or non-reaction when that was what was called for. I wouldn't have had the ability to cause less harm in a situation where I could have potentially caused a lot more harm. So exactly what you're speaking to are these little pockets of practice when we feel like we have the capacity and we have the time and we're not in in an intense situation and we can sit for a couple of minutes and be with ourselves. You are literally building a muscle that is going to be there for you in the other aspects of preparation and performance that, that you all have to go through day in and day out. Which is absolutely this beautiful line between the recovery and preparation things that we talk about, right? That preparation is recovery and recovery is preparation. Mm -hmm. And that when you're really building that habit and that chain of habits, you're right. You're doing it in that moment for yourself, but you're doing it really to set yourself up for whatever comes next, to honor what happened and to set yourself up for what comes next, which is so much of what we spend our time doing. And I'm so glad you said the piece about honor what happens, because this, again, I think is something that we high achieving people, highly productive people often miss out on is that we forget to celebrate our victories. And what the science shows is that if we forget to celebrate our victories, it actually causes harm. We are less likely to celebrate them in the future. We're not going to feel the fulfillment from having done something right of, of having risen to the occasion. So I think on the path, any of these paths, having that moment of looking back and really acknowledging, wow, today I took a breath. I asked myself, did I need to say that before I spoke? I didn't react. I responded from an embodied place. And all of those victories need to be acknowledged and celebrated on, on the path to recovery. So cool. Lauren, this has been amazing. And I, I have so many wonderful memories of taking yoga class from you. And this is just, this is just like all those like multiplied by like a thousand fold to like, think about it like this. I, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for you coming on the podcast to talk about this before we totally wrap up. I, I want to know, do you have anything that you want to leave folks with as a challenge? Anything you want them to try or experiment with, or, or that you'd be hopeful that they would be interested in checking out for themselves after listening to this? My mantra right now has been, I don't want you to change anything about yourself. I don't want you to change your diet. I'm not going to ask you to change anything. And the only thing that I want from each and every one of us as a collective at this point in time is to be open-eyed and present. I, I really believe that there is no leaderboard except for the one that's inside of us. And even that word challenge, I'm so hesitant around because I'm the kind of person you say, oh, a challenge. Well, I'm going to do all 30 days of that challenge. And I'm going to, and then if I don't, then I'm really going to beat myself up about not having done those 30 days. 
And so I think for everyone who might be listening, it's taking a big step back, looking at your life, being really honest about what's on your plate right now, being really compassionate about what's on your plate right now. We didn't even get into the science of of compassion and self-compassion, which is so meaty and beautiful. And be honest with what it is you're capable of committing to in recovery and commit to that. Not something that some outside expert is going to tell you to commit to, but what is reasonable for you in your life right now? And if it's meditating for two minutes a day, five days a week, great. Let's do that. Let's start there. I don't believe that doing 90 minutes one day is sustainable or is the route to creating that foundation of preparation that you were speaking to. But having some sense of consistency, not even seven days a week, on the days that it makes sense for you, on the days when you're not on call, and committing to a practice that feels supportive to you at that point in time. And that would be something that, for me, would really warm my heart, that if each and every one of us were committing to that, what a different society we would be living in. Uh, Yes, please. Count me me in for that. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It is such an honor and such a joy. Thank you. It means so much to be here. And and just for people who are listening, you know, I do have audio meditations that you can take with you places and practices that you can take with you places. So if having that external guidance is important to you, you know, please come over to Inner Dimension TV and, and join me on some of these beautiful journeys. And I I really look forward to hearing from people and and hearing how these practices are resonating with them in their lives and how maybe we can, on our end, be more supportive to this community moving forward. Because if we can serve this community moving forward, I, I, I don't think I could think of much that would be more meaningful than that. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.